0: everyone. Welcome to Talking Research. I'm Asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations. This episode features an extensive discussion about sexual violence, both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. So this week, we're talking to Dr. Nadia Wager, and Nadia is a reader in forensic psychology at the University of Huddersfield in the UK, and she has over 20 years of experience looking at sexual violence in different contexts. Today, we're talking to her about sexual re-victimization and themes related to that, such as disclosure and disassociation. So we're going to be talking about childhood trauma and how that relates to re-victimization victimization I'll let Dr. Nadia Wager explain what re-victimization is. So let's dive in. Hi Nadia, welcome to Talking Research and so lovely to have you here. Well,
1: thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure.
0: Thank you. Uh, do you want to start by telling us about yourself?
1: Okay, yep. So I became an academic um, in my 30s, having brought up three children on my own um, and knew that I desperately wanted to work in the area of sexual violence and I originally had thought I wanted to work with um, offenders. Um, but as, as an undergraduate student, I did some volunteering with our local probation service and some, did some training and realised that I was not the right person to work with offenders Um, and have pursued working around victims ever since Um, so I I, I became an academic by accident really I hadn't planned to do that Um, so I have now been researching and and teaching about sexual violence for for over 20 years.
0: Yeah I was um, when I was researching on your work it just there's so much of it there's so much depth and there's so many different topics as well. I mean, I was wondering how you managed to just uh, keep going. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's exhausting, but but all worthwhile. I think that, that's the thing. Um, and yeah. it, does, it, it, it all joins up. So that sometimes it looks like we're doing very different things, but actually it all comes together in some of the work that we do.
0: And so how did you get into researching sexual violence and sexual victimization in particular? Yeah,
1: well, I think it really stems from, um, as a young 16-year, Old, um, I witnessed a rape um, of somebody I didn't know the victim, but I did know the perpetrator. And it it was late at night in a winter's evening, um, and I was saying goodbye to a boyfriend at the door of my mother's home. And we heard all the screaming that was coming from the end of the road. There were some derelict garages, um, and so we both ran down and found this poor young woman trapped. The perpetrator had pulled up her skirt above her head, and it was a pen in the days of pencil skirts that were very tight fitting. But it meant her arms were trapped, and she was in all this sort of broken glass and mud and rain rain in a real estate screaming um and so we took her home and insisted my mum phone the police and she didn't want the police to be phoned but that's what we insisted on doing and a year later um we got called to court my boyfriend and I um to, to give evidence in her case um and I, I truly believed that, you know, we had both seen, we we knew who the perpetrator was, um, that this would just be a conviction, um, and actually he was acquitted. Um, mm. uh, and I've I've always felt guilty of making that poor young lady live through the court experience to be told that she was lying at the end of the day um, yeah so I think it sort of shattered me really and I think that's where my interest really came from and then as also as when I was working as an undergraduate student I also worked in mental health and it was at the point that we were closing down some of the very long-term mental health institutions and bringing people out of hospital that some of them have been there 20 30 years um, and nearly every client that I had that I brought out of hospital um, had had a history of child sexual abuse and they'd actually been put into psychiatric care on disclosing about the abuse um, and nothing had happened to their perpetrators and so I had these two experiences that really fermented what I was going to do as an academic really. Mm,
0: that sounds quite formative. Um, I was going to ask, I was going to start by asking what sexual re-victimization is because you know when I uh, first read your work I had no idea what the word sexual re-victimization means yeah. and um, I mean it makes so much sense because child abuse is it's such it's epidemic proportions in every society you know it happening yeah. to such a large extent so it makes so much sense so can you explain what that means?
1: I mean it, it can be used in several ways the term the way I use sexual revictimization is it's looking at uh, people who've experienced child sexual abuse who then later on in life are subsequently um, sexually assaulted by different people so different perpetrators at different points in their life and it could be again in childhood or later on in adolescence or adulthood and what we know from the existing literature is between half and two-thirds of victims of child sex abuse will go on to be re-victimised by a different perpetrator at another point in their life um, and that's that's equivalent for both men and women so Equivalent rates, although boys experience less child sex abuse than girls, their rate of re-victimisation matches that of women. Um, And I was dumbfounded by when I first came across this, just um, thinking, why? Why does this happen? You know, how come the same people get targeted? over and over again. And whenever I start off talking about re-victimisation, people often say to me things like, oh, yes, well, there's those people that just sort of bring it on themselves, isn't there? And that's really not what this is about. It's not about victim-blaming or saying it's something to do with the victim themselves it's often to do with um, their circumstances that places them at risk over and over again um, so if i think about children that have had poor childhoods and have ended up living in care as soon as they're away from the biological family there who may have been abusing them they're then at risk of being abused by other people because your risk of being abused as, soon as you're away from your biological family dramatically increases yeah so it's a uh, and unfortunately that you know, the work i've just been looking at doing suggests that actually as a as a society we're very intolerant of people that have experienced sexual re-victimization we engage in quite high levels of disbelief or victim blame um, when somebody discloses to them that this has happened to them more than once
0: yeah and this is what brings me to betrayal trauma what is betrayal trauma
1: yeah well in um, jennifer fried's original work back in 1996 she talks about betrayal trauma and she says that a trauma such as child sex abuse um, actually has two dimensions to the trauma the first one is is to do with the level of terror that somebody's experienced and she of says not all child sex abuse at the time would necessarily have an element of terror the person may have been very nice to them. The child might have seen it as a game. Um, so initially, they might not be terror, or there could be other circumstances where there is. And the other dimension of of, of um, betrayal trauma is the amount of um, social betrayal. So how how much did you trust the person who has harmed you in this way? Um, and she sort of said, with a lot of child sex abuse, you might have a low-level of terror but you can have a very very high degree of social betrayal and so it's the social betrayal that then causes the traumatic reaction so it works out it's a combination of those two things and i think it was such a wonderful way of explaining um, why children often delay reporting because they don't experience what happens to them necessarily as terrifying um, it's only as they reach adolescence and their own understanding about sex and intimate relationships suddenly comes to them what's happened to them in the past was actually very bad, so actually that's why we so often see this sort of what we call a sleeper effect of the impact of child sex abuse only happens to people as they hit adolescence, particularly those that didn't experience high levels of terror at the time of the abuse itself.
0: So, who is most vulnerable to sexual revictimization?
1: From some of the work that we've done, it looks as though those who've experienced the most severe forms of sexual abuse, um, and when we think about how severe we're talking about how long did the abuse go on for so how many weeks months or years did did the abuse involve any form of penetration or other very um, uh, explicit sexual acts and so there doesn't seem to be any other key predictors so i think what i found from my research is people that have experienced what i've called double betrayal which is where they have experienced high levels of social betrayal so the person that abused them is somebody that they really highly trusted and also they then have attempted to tell somebody and obviously if you're going to tell somebody that you've been abused you're going to really think about who you're going to tell and it's going to be somebody again that you really trust and actually what happens with many disclosures that children attempt to make is the person that they're telling disbelieves them or they engage in some element of victim blaming either intentionally or unintentionally and so I've called that in my research double betrayal um, so that you've got a, an abuser who's somebody you trusted and then somebody that is a confidant who you've disclosed to who you've trusted who's let you down and they're the ones in my research they were almost a 100% chance of being re-victimized which is just absolutely shocking really certainly I mean, there, there was other research that was done around the impact of child sex abuse, generally in terms of mental health, that had said that actually it was often the response to an attempted disclosure that had the worst impact rather than the nature of the abuse itself on the outcomes for the child. And so not only does that happen in terms of mental well-being, it also appears to happen in relation to sexual re I think
0: that's so important to focus on because tackling child abuse is so important to focus upon because your research tells us that it's not just an isolated incident um, no. it can happen again and these children who are abused are vulnerable in the future as well so as a well-meaning parent who is concerned about the safety of their child but you obviously can't be everywhere with your child how yeah. do you pay attention to you know are there any telltale signs
1: well I think there's telltale signs um about the other people around the child um, as well as telltale signs possibly within the child. If I start with people around we often sort of think of potential child sex offenders as a number of different sort of stereotypical characters one that they will be male that they'll be adult male and that they'll be un- unpleasant in some way um, and what we know is about 50 percent of child sex abuse is actually perpetrated by other children or adolescents so we will often get in the people to look after our children who themselves are maybe just sort of teenagers later adolescents which is actually quite a risky time we often don't think about women as being child sex offenders but actually, if we were ask women on anonymous surveys about how many of them have a sexual interest in children, it's actually about 6% of women have an interest in that way. Um, and it's it's, like, it's less than men, but it's still it's still quite a scary proportion. So I think one of the key things that a, a lady who had worked with sex offenders called Carla Van Dam, she wrote a book some years ago called The Socially Skilled Child Molester. And she said something that was really important in her book. And she said we should always become aware... And suspicious when somebody comes into our lives who's too good to be true, who um, always wants to help out with the children. They're always really keen to be available to do things. It should just spark a little bit of worry for us. Um, I always think that as much as we love our own children, other people's children are a bit of a nuisance to us. So if you've got somebody that's suddenly going, no, don't you worry, I'll do that. You go and let them have a rest or you pop out, I'll sort this out for you. You need to be aware. I think the other thing is, is to bring up children so that they they know that they can question anything and that they can tell you anything and i think there's often signs where I've, I mean, I've, I've been a parent i've got three very grown children and i'm being very guilty of this myself so i'm not condemning anybody for what i'm about to say but there'll be times when you're busy and you'll be going off to i don't know your aunt and uncle's house or granddad's house and um the child will say do we have to go and as a parent, you just say, "Of course you do. Now put your coat on and get in the car." Whereas what we should be saying to them is, "Oh, do you not want to go? And and why don't you want to go?" And actually, that's providing space for a child to actually say something to you. And what we often do is we close down those potential conversations. So if a child ever shows reticence about being near somebody, we need to question that. If they t- start thinking in terms of secrets secrets are a no-go we're allowed to have surprises but not secrets because if it's like we don't tell mum about this or we don't tell so and so it's our secret that becomes quite problematic so it's about teaching children the difference between secrets and surprises and that secrets actually aren't very good surprises are nice because it's going to be something you don't tell somebody but you're about to tell them later and they're going to find out and it's going to be lovely for them but and i think just suddenly children's change in demeanor so not wanting to get an undressed In the way that they would do normally talking about their body parts using different language to what they would do normally becoming quite withdrawn i think if they're not engaging with their peers in the same way they're just little signs to open up conversations and you don't have to mentioned the conversation explicitly about abuse you can just ask them you know are you okay is there something wrong is there something you want to tell me it's hard because we can't we can't be there all the time as parents and so we have to trust them trust we have to trust other people around our children on occasions but i think it's also things like allowing children even from being quite young to actually allowing them privacy for going to the toilet for getting undressed and so that way if somebody else is around them and they've got to do those things they can say to the person no I shut the door you know so it's a norm that I have privacy and so they know when somebody's overstepping that mark and, and are able to challenge challenge it to some extent so I think some sex offenders would be very put off by the fact it wasn't easy to get that child to comply straight away
0: yeah I mean this is just uh, when I think of this and I think of you know the possibility that you have three kids and you know you're already uh, so overburdened by the responsibility of being a full-time caregiver and then you're also like oh how do I make sure that my child is not being abused yeah. just, I think there definitely need to be more resources more easily available to parents
1: yeah and I think that I think that's one of the troubles is that it's something that we don't want to think about and we certainly don't want to think about it happening to our child um and I think there needs to be more where we're forced to see it um to so say like when I had my children it was a very long time ago now but I had all the different books on parenting and childbirth and we know we'd certainly look up everything and it had all the things to do with accidents and illnesses and birth complications. There was never any mention about risk of the children once they were born in terms of risk of abuse, what were the signs of abuse, how to prevent abuse, how to recognise it within yourself and with your partner, whether or not that it was overstepping boundaries and I think that's we just need it to be in normal conversation and not to shy away from it really so it's something that we, we can bring up between us as adults uh, and I think that if we had children that were able to challenge and were able to talk to us as I said earlier the the impact of a child sex abuse is made far worse by the re- reaction that the child gets when trying to tell somebody far better that they're if something should happen untoward, that the child is able to disclose very quickly and the parents are able to respond with emotional warmth towards the child um, and to take protective action um, because that could actually undo the harm that's been done.
0: And you find that there's a relationship between disclosures and amnesia.
1: Yeah, and that was really interesting because the previous literature, I mean, People don't like talking about amnesia. Again, it's one of those things that a whole body of research in psychology has questioned whether or not it was possible to completely forget memories of abuse and then for them to spontaneously return at a later date we've slightly moved beyond that now we recognize that this this does actually happen but the literature previously had said well if you became amnesic you would never have disclosed well what i found in my study was that actually it was those who'd attempted to disclose that were most likely to become amnesic for their memories of abuse Um, and i've subsequently found a couple of other studies that have also mentioned the same thing they're much more qualitative so it was one-off instance whereas mine was a statistical a statistical significance finding Um, but I was very pleased to see that it wasn't that and I can imagine actually that it would make sense the fact that there's there's now no escape from the situation so not only are you likely to be more likely to be being abused by a a caregiver and somebody that's very trusted that's around you most of the time to become amnesic but you also have attempted to tell somebody to to end the abuse um, and they have blamed you or disbelieved you and not acted to protect you which would make the child feel incredibly incredibly powerless and hopeless about the, the situation and the one way to escape then the situation is to block it from memory so with amnesia what we find is the children are able to carry on as normal the rest of the time and it's only in the context when the abuse is actually happening that they become aware of it again and it immediately shuts down again Hmm. Um, and unfortunately to my research and some other people's research is suggesting that the average age of spontaneously remembering about abuse is around about the age of 30 Um, and because I'd found also that amnesia placed people at risk for higher rates of sexual revictimisation. So is that the point that they wouldn't know to go for help for the fact they've experienced child sex abuse? So that they were really sort of very much at risk.
0: I mean, that is genuinely something that isn't spoken about at all. <laughs> like, no. i was just thinking about when was the last time I've heard anyone talk about, you know, re-victimization or amnesia and how that's related to disclosures. That's just so fascinating. And something else that I found really, really interesting in your work is that you've looked at how psychoeducational programs that aim at reducing risk of sexual assault, they fall short in supporting victims by spotting risks and uh, removing oneself from dangerous situations they're not able to you know look at people who've been abused in the past as children and who who are amnesic so tell us more about that.
1: Well I felt that because um, many people were amnesic at the point they would um, and it's about between 25 and 30 percent of victims of child sex abuse will become amnesic so we're talking about quite a big proportion of victims of child sex abuse and so what I felt is we would need sort of universally applied sexual violence prevention programs to try and help sexual re-victimization. And so I've conducted um, a meta-analysis of um, a lot of campus-based sexual violence prevention programs have been conducted in America at universities and colleges in America. We haven't had enough of them in this country yet to do it in, in the UK. And generally speaking, they, they seem to have quite quite a good impact on people that don't have a history of previous sexual violence and what I was interested in is how well do they work for people who've got a history of child, se- child sexual abuse and who are possibly amnesic. I couldn't look into the possibly amnesic because nobody wants to mention that in their previous studies so I've had to just focus on the re Now many of the studies did include measures of previous child sexual abuse or previous adolescent or adult sexual assault but none of the studies separated out child sex abuse from the other forms of abuse that could happen later on uh, which was a shame but so I had to work with the data as it was now unfortunately what we're finding is while the programs do seem to work for people that haven't experienced previous sexual victimizations they're not as effective and in some instances are actually more dangerous for people who already have a previous experience of sexual assault. Now now my issue is particularly in relation to people who are amnesic um, and if you have amnesia you're much more likely to dissociate when something becomes threatening so you know you have that you're still there within within body but your mind travels elsewhere and so you you behave a bit like an automaton um, and not like yourself so much more likely to, if a situation suddenly and unexpectedly becomes sexually charged, um, to engage in what we'd refer to as tonic immobility through dissociating, so that freezing. And if they've frozen, they're not going to be able to respond in a way that would protect themselves. Because they can't, so it's no good teaching people how to recognise risks. I think on an unconscious level they recognise risk but on an con- unconscious level they've already gone into a dissociated state. They recognise it very early, dissociate, so there's no moving on from that. They're certainly not going to be able to respond in a way that makes them leave the situation or to behave yeah. assertively. That 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 couldn't happen if if you've gone into tonic immobility. I also think that um, the people that have experienced child sexual abuse, particularly where it was in a family context, and they've been very, very used to putting other people's needs above their own, um, and so they're used to having things done to them against their will, find it very, very hard to assert, to assert their wishes and to be very vocal and assertive about what they want and what they don't want. And so they might not want sex, but they might not be able to say, I don't want that in an assertive way. So they might use much more passive ways of trying to show the person this isn't wanted, which unfortunately doesn't then hold up in a court of law. It certainly doesn't put off the person making their sexual advantage advances yeah. so for me I felt that they were targeting the wrong things and, and also as somebody that's experienced sexual violence taking part in one of those programs I wondered how it would feel if you had been told well this is what you should do you should avoid this situation and this is how you need to respond if it escalates and it's your responsibility to yeah. get yourself out of the situation if you've already been sexually assaulted I'm, I was wondering whether that really fueled self-blame um, and yeah. sort of said well hang on a minute I should have this shouldn't have happened I should have got out of this situation So for me, I felt that there was other things that needed to happen. And at the moment, I'm rerunning the meta-analysis because what's changed from when I first did it, and because I didn't publish it, unfortunately, but I've written it and I'm now rewriting it to publish. But things have changed within the landscape of these campus-based programmes. And now what we're finding is there's been a much stronger emphasis on self-defence training. Um, What the impact that has had on the programme participants is it has raised their level of assertiveness. Now, for me, I think that could really work for victims who've already got a history of of sexual abuse because it's not about having to act act in self-defense at the time, but if it raises your level to be assertive generally in normal life, Mm -hmm. I think that's a very big protective factor because actually many predatory offenders will purposely target people because they look like they're socially withdrawn, they're highly anxious, they show signs of dissociating. They get targeted and I think if you can look assertive and confident, actually you're far less likely to be targeted so although it doesn't help you escape a situation if somebody has targeted you it might reduce your risk of being targeted if that makes sense
0: yeah I mean this when I, when I was reading your work and it talked about these psychoeducational programs that are aimed at reducing risk of sexual assault and they tell you that you need to protect yourself and this is how you can do it I mean it reminds me a lot of what's happening in India because we've been told for ages that women need to be vigilant women need yeah. to learn you know karate or self-defense stuff and it's so it's like okay, I mean, I can I can see why I would benefit from being vigilant, but that really should not be your prime focus. I mean, your prime focus definitely should be looking at the person who is perpetrating this violence. I mean, yeah. um, it absolutely is not my responsibility to make sure that I'm not assaulted in
1: daylight. Like, <laughs> no, what, my my argument there is is we can make we can make all women who are taking part in these programs who are able to take what we called, we could target harden them so we can make them unattractive targets for predatory offenders. It's not stopping the offenders wanting to offend, it will just yeah. displace where they do it, who they target. So I'm I think in terms of if I think if I was doing the programmes in, in England, it would just move offenders They travel abroad and pick on a group of people that haven't gone through these programmes abroad. It might mean they target people who are so vulnerable that they either weren't able to take part in the programmes because they weren't in education or that their learning ability is such that they couldn't benefit from the programmes and so they would be targeted. My other fear is that offenders would just change the tactics that they use to get their victims and use much more aggressive tactics. I don't, yeah. so I, I don't care how many people we train to try and pr- protect ourselves, we are not stopping the offending you yeah, know, we're just, exactly. we're just shifting it and changing it.
0: Yeah, and I think your work is so important because it really brings up this, you know, other question that what about people who don't have a recollection of being abused as children? I mean, what about those who are amnesic and as you're, Research highlights this quite a huge proportion of them, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you've pointed out that there are preventative measures of sexual violence that are sort of alternative to this potential victim centric defense strategy. So, what are those?
1: Well, I, I think that there's, um, particularly in the case of sexual revictimization with victims who are amnesic and engage in dissociation, I think there there's a lot of very well intentioned sexual partners or suitors, to call them a better word, who have started out well intentioned intentioned but through their actions have inadvertently sexually assaulted somebody or had sex with somebody who at least wasn't fully consenting and if i'm I'm, i particularly talk about young young men in this and i should it doesn't just relate to young men it could be young women it could be older guys but i think particularly for young people who being honest are worried about their own performance or their own prowess and whether or not they're living up to the young lady's expectations. Men seem to have sex on their mind much more than women do but men think that because they've got it on their mind that we've also got it on our minds. Unfortunately, we haven't. I'm normally thinking about the washing up and walking the dogs. But, but it means <laughs> yeah. that they, they read signs in, in our behaviour that they think are suggestive that we're ready for sex, when in fact we haven't even thought about sex. So if I give the example, um, I'm very nurturant and I want to look after everybody. And so my daughter and I, Angel, we ran some focus groups a few years ago with young men looking at their understanding. of consent for sex with a partner who clearly dissociated when they made advances unexpectedly. Um, And so we gave them the scenario, um, which I inbuilt all these little things of being very nurturant towards the other person. So the scenario was two colleagues who work for different organisations, but are working on a joint project and the organisations are geographically far apart, have had to come together to work on a project. So they've booked um, often hotels in the UK you can book like a conference room to do business. They've booked one of those in a hotel working on the project. During the course of the day the gentleman complains he's hot the young woman automatically opens the window. They then have lunch and there's a bit of extra mashed potato so she pops it on his plate, he drops his fork, she picks it up um, she then gives him the extra glass of water that's left in in the thing. These are as far as I'm concerned, are not signs of flirtation. They're just being nurturing. And um, and as they leave the building, it's pouring with rain. She has an umbrella. So she holds it up over both of them as they walk into their cars. And because they're mid-conversation, he sits in the passenger seat of her car just while they finish the conversation. And from there, he then makes a pass at her and engages in a sexual act. And she has just frozen and has done nothing because wasn't expected. And so when the young men look at this scenario, we had one instance of one of the focus groups, which was just one where they um, the guys at the end we then say to them so what's happened in this scenario and the guy's going yeah yeah yeah. she was clearly up for sex and they list she opened the window she gave in the mashed potato picked up the fork or the knife whatever it was off the floor she gave an extra water held up the umbrella and then one of the gentlemen and because these people don't know each other just said well hold on a minute I've just po- pointed at one of the young men I've just po- passed you a packet of crisps and then he looked at another young man and said and I've just passed you a can of coke I quite like like you both but i don't want to have sex with you and because the other (laughs) then oh yeah i suppose it could be nice somebody not want sex couldn't you and actually with these young men they were so wonderful to do these focus groups with because actually we'd we'd only allowed for 10 minutes of debriefing at the end but actually they stayed for an hour and a half two hours after after each of the focus groups saying we'd never even thought about this context you know that actually we might have done this we might have had sex with somebody that didn't actually want it because we never thought to really ask why they weren't responding they just said we were just so worried that we we had to perform properly and so I just thought actually this is a group of people who they're not predatory offenders but they might inadvertently leave somebody feeling like they've been sexually assaulted and that's not something they'd want to do but nobody's really talked to them about this potential risk and I've calculated you've got a one in 12 chance that being a young man that's trying to get off with a young woman for want of a better word you've got a one in 12 chance of picking on somebody that's going to dissociate Mm. Um, And if they don't understand that concept, how do they know how to negotiate it? So I think in terms of in the UK, we're about to bring out these sex and relationship education programs are going mandatory across the country as of September 2020. And I'd really like to see some discussion in those programs, not just with young men, but also with young women. And explaining the fact that actually some people might have a history which means that they freeze and there's no way they're going to say to you yes or no they're just going to freeze and if somebody responds to you like that just take a step back um, and just chat through because it might be that they actually do like you and that they might want sex with you but they certainly don't want it now um, but you need to develop the relationship. And it could be a huge relief to both parties, couldn't it? Um, yeah, I think you've so wonderfully
0: captured this whole concept of dis- disassociation and you've explained it so well. I mean, this whole idea that, oh, why didn't, she defend herself or why didn't she just leave I mean it, you've shown that there's so many layers to that and can be a response to a trauma during childhood or it can just be that the person hasn't been socialized to you know say what they need and there's so, so many reasons for it and uh, I, I think it's so wonderful to talk about it and just like this once again for the ones at the back <laughs> <laughs> um, this association is essentially when someone freezes up uh, during a sexual encounter or a traumatic Encounter,
1: right? Yeah, any, I mean, I think if I give you the example many years ago, I had a very near miss car accident where my car, the engine had completely died as I was doing a three point turn in a very narrow, dark lane. And i would got a very black car and not just the engine died, but all of the lights, all the electrics went. So i would got this black car that took up the whole little tiny lane on a windy road very late at night and I could see this other car. A big car heading towards me very fast but I couldn't I couldn't move I couldn't scream I couldn't get out of my car I couldn't signal to the per- the driver that I was in my car and they couldn't see me there was nothing um, and luckily they managed to stop just by the, my door literally ground to a halt um, and I was my hands were locked onto my steering wheel um, and I was completely and utterly frozen and it took them about 15 minutes to be able to get me to talk or to come back to where I was I had decided obviously in my mind that I was dying and that was it um, and that that is what people experience it's a complete locking out I didn't have any single thought going on in my head at that time it's a completely as I wasn't there other people can describe it by saying saying they intentionally dissociate when it's something that's inescapable and um, so many children might engage in this when its abuse is happening to them you just think about of yourself as being in another place and you just make out to yourself you're not here it's not you and I think people have, have explained that when they've experienced torture and things as well you've got to try and distance yourself from what's going on but unfortunately what happens is it becomes a spontaneous reaction that you have no control over
0: yeah and this is a very broad question but I want to ask you how how do we tackle sexual re-victimization?
1: I think I think it's a lot of the work is, is educating people about the fact that these people aren't to be blamed for what's happened to them so actually we can hear disclosures and respond appropriately. I think understanding about how we re- we never really have discussions about how it is that we actually know that somebody else wants sex with us. We all think we know, know what it is and we presume because we've had sex with somebody once that they'll have it with us again and that's not necessarily true and I think we need to be find much more creative ways and it's not about saying yes or no because that's not particularly sexy and also people don't do it it's not what people yes. do they don't people don't say to you would you like to have sex um, and you say yes and then you say but what sex do you want because actually there's, there's also I mean, it's, it's, it's very embarrassing to talk about which is why we don't do it but we don't normally think even I might have in my mind what sex is and somebody else might have something in their mind of what The sex that they want is and I might agree to sex but what I'm agreeing to is what's in my head not what they've anticipated I've said yes to so this idea that you should be checking all the way through does your partner look as though they're happy enjoying are they engaging or are they suddenly looking as though they're not happy and and just checking There, there are ways of doing it that you make sure that everything you do is consensual yeah. um, so I always well, I am not I know anything about S&M you know sadomasochism so, but that whole idea of having safe words yeah. um, to, to stop something I mean they, they've got consent wrapped up where the rest of us haven't <laughs> so, Yeah. so I think sure. it is just having respect for one another I think is very key within relationships and certainly not blaming blaming somebody if they're to disclose to you that this has happened more than once
0: yeah and on a society level i mean looking at you've said that what 25 to 30 percent of of victims of child abuse are re-victimized am i getting that yeah.
1: number wrong? oh no it's it, 50 to two set th- 50 to two thirds of victims of child sex abuse are re-victimized and 25 to 30 percent of victims of child sex abuse experience amnesia wow. for a period of time so we've got it's a re- sexual revictimization it's a massive issue yeah. um, and so the, the, from my studies people that had had a negative response to a disclosure of child sex abuse nearly 100% of them were sexually re-victimised at later, at later on in adolescence or adulthood let alone being re-victimised in childhood so it, it is something to tackle and I think we don't, we don't talk about it. and I think if we were putting better support in place for children I think currently in the UK and I don't know what it's like elsewhere in the world there tends to be very very little support for children in the immediate aftermath of child sex abuse. We've been very much of the opinion that if we don't talk about things it will go away and we only really do any interventions once the children hit adolescence and mental health issues are starting to present or they're engaged in disruptive acting out behaviours, very much externalising problems Um, and then they're suddenly seen as problematic and in need of help. What we should be doing is giving children opportunities to talk and process about the abuse in ways that are constructive to them. Um, So if you look at interviews with adult survivors or adolescent survivors many of them will say i just wanted to have a chance to talk about it but nobody would talk about it with me it's almost as if we forget about it it will go away so i think that if we were and we're never going to know about all instances of child abuse but if we were one able to get children to disclose but I think we can only do that once we've educated adults in the population on how to respond appropriately to a disclosure because my fear at the moment is we're going to encourage through our child um, sexual assault prevention programs we're going to encourage more disclosures but we're not going to have people ready to hear them um, Mm. in the right way but if we could get those things working better and give children normal opportunities to talk about and process the abuse in order to move on with their lives in a positive way I think we could prevent the level of revictimization.
0: I, I'm just wondering what is the right way to handle a disclosure
1: from your child? I, th- I think the, the, the good news is that there's nothing to be gained from something incredibly positive. So we don't have to be perfect in the way that we respond. So far, say no research says there's a benefit to a positive disclosure. All the research tells us at the moment is there's very negative implications from a negative disclosure. So all we've got to not do is we've not got to blame the child in any way and we've, we've got to believe them. Um, so if you start with belief, um, it means the child can disclose more to you. We need to be able to show them, that we care for them and that we're going to protect them that actually adult survivors who would talk about their disclosures will often say you know somebody was really caring towards me they really did their best the abuse didn't stop but but the person did their best and that seems to be protective in terms of what happens later so I think it's the fact that you're emotionally warm to the child you show them that you care that you are really listening to them and that you believe them and don't say things to them like you shouldn't have come out the bathroom without your bathrobe on there's silly little things that we do that imply blame when we don't mean to do So, if I think about the um, the Stop It Now campaign that Lucy Faithful Foundation were running some years ago, on the back of one of their leaflets, they gave the little example of an auntie who her Her brother-in-law had been playing with her niece on the floor when she was very young. And he'd been tickling and tickling and tickling her. And the child, who was very young at the time, was squealing and screaming, shouting, stop it, and really high-pitched screaming. And so the aunt had said to her, shh, be quiet. Mm -hmm. And she said, and when the young lady, the the child reached, I think she was about the age of 13. And obviously, I'm remembering this in my way that I tell the story. um, The young girl disclosed to her aunt that her father had been sexually abusing her so the brother-in-law of the arm, and she said and i thought back to my response when he'd been tickling her and she said she was obviously squealing and shouting stop and what i should have said to him was stop she clearly doesn't want that you're going beyond what what she's enjoying and he said and she said and that would have been a clear indication to my niece that i was listening to her and that i was willing to act on it and she said, but what i did is i silenced her by doing my sh-. um because what i told her then is you can't tell me because i'm not going to do anything about anything mm. and she did it was something so simple like that. So I think it's just don't be a normal parent like like we've all been, where we just say to, we override something our children say. Think back and just think, just give them an opening to let them say. Lots of people say, the reason I never disclosed is I never had an opportunity. And if only somebody had asked me why, or if everything was okay, I would have told them. And that's really sad to hear, isn't it?
0: Definitely. And I think what I'm taking also from what you've said is that if we want to tackle re-victimization, it needs to be on all fronts. So, in law, when people go on trial, they, when people are, yeah. you know, talking about their experiences, we need to take into account that there is no ideal way of responding to a traumatic experience. Then, in a family right. thing, we need to look at that. In schools, how we educate children. So, it needs to be a societal shift in how we think
1: um yeah well i've got some work i'm doing at the moment it's an article i'm hoping to finish over christmas where i've looked at you know attrition where cases that of sexual assault that are reported to the police that then don't make it to court um so it looks at all the attrition studies that have included sexual revictimization i've looked at all the studies of police officers decision makings when sexual revictimization has occurred and all the experimental studies looking at sexual revictimization and the impact it has on other people's attitudes towards levels of uh, victim blame and perpetrator blame and what we're finding is is where it is known that a current complainant of rape or sexual assault has a history of a previous sexual assault whether it be in adulthood or childhood there's far less likely. where that, that case is very unlikely to ever get to court the police are unlikely to investigate it because it's seen as an indicator of the person having a mental health issue um, and there's this sense that it couldn't possibly happen more than once to somebody in terms of the, the police decision making they just see it as somebody that's a fantasist it's a clear indicator of a false allegation and in the experimental studies what we see is there's far higher levels of disbelief and I'm the only person that's looked at disbelief in a study that's just coming out in the next couple of weeks Um, so disbelief is really high particularly when the previous assault was a childhood sexual assault rather than a previous adult rape, and much higher levels of victim blame in people that do believe the allegation Um, and again it's really, the blame is really heavily leveled at people that had a previous history of child sex abuse. We're even seeing in studies that have been done on re-victimisation within childhood that if it's a perpetrator that's repeatedly offended against the child the child is seen as more blameworthy than the perpetrator mm-hmm. uh, so the perpetrator is seen as less blameworthy for that incident it's almost like it's the child's own fault for having allowed it to happen over and over again when actually it's not the child's responsibility to be protecting themselves and also in instances where a child is re-victimised by multiple different perpetrators so the subsequent perpetrators are held less accountable. Accountable than a, a perpetrator to a tr- against the child who's. Only been assaulted by that one person. So we have, and I think that we have a problem at the moment around sexual exploitation in this country, where children are being multiply sexually abused by multiple perpetrators. Um, and currently those cases are unlikely to get into the criminal justice system, and certainly unlikely to end up in convictions. And I just think that these are the people that have been most harmed and most, and also most let down then by the justice system. So we, we do need, I say, we need to change things on all levels. Everything needs to change. Ever since I've started
0: this podcast, something I'm getting a lot is, "Oh, this is such an intense topic," or "This is such a difficult topic." And uh, you know, I I think of researchers like you who are looking at it every day, and you know, this is this is your work and this is your professional, you know, nine to five.
1: or it's way 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 more than that.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No more yeah. than that uh, in this political climate. I mean, academics are overworked and underpaid for sure. But um, w-
1: does this take an emotional toll on you? It, it does it really it really really does so i've been doing this now for 20 years and i i had what looked like um, a minor stroke back in April when I was at work, having been on a very busy project around this. Um, and it was a combination of factors, but it sort of, it's taken me quite a few months to be able to function again. So it impacted on my memory. I couldn't bear to look at anything to do with sexual violence. Um, and I think I'd reached the point of burnout, if I'm honest. And I'd, I've normally been incredibly careful about how I manage, manage my workload. I mean, I do work excessive hours and I'm completely immersed in it, but I purposely, live in the middle of nowhere. I've got dogs and ducks and cats and and chickens. I grow my own veg and I'm normally sort of very active walking in the countryside and I try to balance all of the negative stuff with um, the beauty of nature really. But because I'd been so busy on sort of various projects. I'd actually not been walking the dogs. I'd not been growing my veg. I hadn't been doing all the things that normally provide a balance in my life. And I think the other thing that I've only recently moved to the north of England, having lived down south quite close to my children. And I think I was also quite socially isolated, um, not having... My children are grown up in their 30s and are my best friends. And we weren't having sort of the weekly contact that we would have done previously. So I think people do need... I mean, I've written about this previously, but we really need to look after ourselves. If we're to do justice to our research participants and and to make change, we've got to keep well. So I think we have an obligation to stay healthy, keep a balance. I think connecting with others are are researching a similar area so we can help one another. And just recognise every now and again, we have to just say, no more, I can't look at this momentarily. I need to just take a break because it can be, yeah, it can be very hard hitting and it comes you sideways. It's often something that you didn't think would upset you or leave you feeling distressed that does. You know, it's almost that like we can cope with so much, and then it's the it's the straw that broke the camel's back. Usually, isn't it? The one little thing that just makes it all come cup crumbling down. So you've raised a really important point, actually.
0: Yeah, I mean, what you've said is so profound as well. Saying no is okay, and saying no is often something that will probably help you a lot in the long run yeah. for your longevity. I really hope you're. Fine fine
1: with your health. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm learning. I've taken up yoga now and uh, oh. I'm back to walking the dogs every day. And I've just, I'm have just i having to say to people, actually, I can't do that. At this moment in time, I can't do that because I've got this to do. And I'm trying to be much more realistic because I, I, re- I used to just stay up all night trying to work on things because people d- would impose their deadlines on top of other things I'd have. But you can't work that intensely on topics like this all of the time yeah. Um, yeah once you've hit 20 years you have to sort of say I need a little break um, and in eventually my, my head imposed my break for me mm. so I just didn't get to enjoy it
0: <laughs> yeah well, I hope you get to enjoy your future breaks and uh, I'm so thank glad you. you could make time for this well, it's been lo- it's been really
1: lovely talking oh, to you
0: thank you and I think you just you have such a gift of explaining all these really complicated concepts well seemingly complicated concepts concepts so excessively i think we're just so lucky to talk to you and you know hear you hear, hear about all your wonderful work so thank you so much nadia
1: well thank you
0: That was Dr. Nadia Wager. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next Sunday. We're talking to Dr. Liz Kelly this week and if you have any thoughts on this episode or the podcast in general, anything I can improve on or anything you'd like to hear me talking about to an expert, give me a shout out, write me an email or tweet at us. It's really exciting. We're on Twitter and there's a huge academic community on there and yeah, you can find us there as well. If you need, there is a link to organizations that support victims and survivors of sexual violence so check that out and you might also find episode three with dr franziska Mink interesting she is talking about child abuse in sub-saharan africa in that one so thank you for tuning in i'm asmita and this is talking research